today. 80% of businesses don't sell. To be a part of the 20% that do, and at maximum value, you'll need a successful strategy. Welcome to the Defenders of Business Value podcast, where we interview today's top professional advisors who help business owners create, preserve, and most importantly, transfer value. If you want actionable tips that will increase your business value, stay tuned. The podcast starts now with your host, Ed Mysoglad. I had the opportunity to interview one of my long-term referral partners, Josh Brown. He is in the world of franchising. He is just a pool of knowledge. And it was a wonderful conversation. And I'm certain that if if you're a franchisee or a franchisor, you will benefit from our conversation. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Brown. Welcome to the show, Josh. I gave uh, everyone a little bit of an overview of you and, and what you're doing in the franchise space, but uh, I suppose give the audience a little bit more about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Well, thanks, Ed. First of all, thanks for having me on. Really, really appreciate it. I always love talking with you and look forward to talking with you today about the franchise world. Um, I'm a franchise lawyer. I've been practicing for a little under uh, 14 years and with about 10 years in the franchise space. And I'm I'm based in Indiana, but I actually do franchise work all over the country. And uh, in addition to that, as you all know, I, I started my own franchise podcast about six and a half years ago called Franchise Euphoria. That's a weekly podcast where I interview uh, franchisors and franchisees from, from literally around the world and hear their stories, their challenges, their the obstacles they've overcome, really from the purpose of providing good, free, valuable information for people who are in and around franchising. So the combination between my law practice, the podcast, and uh, everything else keeps me keeps me quite busy. Well, I'll tell you, you're, you you are on the short list for anything franchise related. I know I know where to go. Well, I appreciate that. But you've always been so generous with the uh, information you've shared with with uh, not only my colleagues but uh, also the the people we've sent over. So again, thanks so much for doing that. So. As we get started here, you know, franchising and unemployment have historically been positively correlated. And when employment rises, people look to franchise to the franchise system as a means of buying a stable job. But, you know, in this robust economy that we have, it seems that there's there's more and more franchises, but not as many buyers going after the new franchise startups, but instead are favoring more toward the resales. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a couple of things behind that. I mean, I think it's a really interesting statistic. I think it's true. I mean, I think people have in their minds this notion that franchising is a more stable industry than just going out and opening up your own shingle. And I think in certain contexts, it may be. But, you know, statistically speaking, you know, you have a uh, very high likelihood of failure in a franchise just as you do in a in a non franchise business. But I, th- I think one of the things that we're seeing in terms of people who are buying franchises looking towards other franchise systems to buy on a resale, as you mentioned, as opposed to just buying something anew, is a couple of things. I, th- I think first and foremost, um, there's so many offerings out there now. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where franchises you know, were relegated 
mostly in the restaurant space and a few other service areas. Now, everywhere in our economy has been franchised. I mean, there's not an area that hasn't been franchised. So, so there's lots of opportunities. And so I think it's hard for people to discern and, and, and sift through all of these different opportunities and think about what they can do to start fresh. It's much easier for somebody to go into a business that's already up and going. And especially if they have a good corporate background in operations um, or management or combination thereof, if you can go and find a franchise business that's not being run properly or, you know, there's something else that's going on and you can identify the one or two things that you need to do to tweak it, you have a much better opportunity, I think, uh, for success um, to look at taking over that business that's up and going with customer list already in a location. You don't have to deal with finding real estate, which is becoming harder and harder um, to find. And so you have a lot of variables that you still have when you buy a franchise anew that you can kind of not deal with if you're looking if you're looking at a at a resale. And I think there's just more and more of them out there over the years. And it's sort of been a culmination that there's just more opportunities for people to go in and, and find a good resale that might meet with their qualifications and experience. Yeah. We, you know, the funny thing that we're seeing, like, for example, home healthcare, I mean, there, there is a new franchise popping up all, all the time. And one of the questions we always get is what's the difference between these 15 different same service providers. And so why are we seeing so many new franchises is because I got to assume it, it's just as hard with exception of you know more information. I, I have to assume that it's just as difficult to get a franchise out and into the economy as it's always been. Yeah, I mean, it is. But the thing is, the, I think this, the, the number to look at is not the ones that are starting the franchisors that are starting, look at the ones that are around five years later. And that's the thing that's the telltale. I mean, you 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 said um, home health care. I'm very, very familiar with that space. I've done tons of work in that space. In fact, the statistics in franchising will tell you that aside from restaurants, which always are going to be the fastest growing because they're just, it's just the biggest segment of the franchise market. Outside of restaurants, Healthcare related franchises are the fastest growing segment in franchising. And of course, that's because in large part, the market opportunity, you know, the baby boomers, the seniors, um, so forth. Um, but the thing is, is that a lot of folks have a false sense of what it takes to franchise. And so I run across people and I get calls literally every week from people who want to franchise their business. And Ed, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Um, I won't say names, but I've, I've gotten real calls from people who will literally they've been in business for a month and they want a franchise. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. It's like you and I would look at that and say, that's the most that's that's ridiculous. But people are serious about it because in their own mind, they think, oh, franchising is literally just me, you know, slapping some systems in here. And uh, selling it to a bunch of people and I can get off and running. It's not that easy at all. It's a very involved process. But I do think what's different is not that it's easier to franchise. You still have to go through the same stuff. But 
it's easier to learn about franchising because obviously of the internet and just going online and learning and trying to, you know, Google everything, you can learn more about those opportunities. And so the information is more readily available, which then leads to people who have natural entrepreneurial tendencies to think, oh, I can do this. What the hell is, you know, there's nothing, there's no big deal about doing that. And the challenge is, is that you got to look at what's around after five years of launching because the, the, there's a significant drop in franchise companies that opened versus are still in existence five years later. Yeah. And no, and and we see the same thing that, you know, just because the, the service provider, the, in this case, the franchise or has the uncanny ability to buy clicks and be at the top of the search and so on and so forth, that, that does not necessarily make the opportunity a great one. It just means that, you know, you, that their uh, uh, Google AdWords are, are doing great. Well, it means they're good at marketing, right? I mean, right, it's sure. it, but marketing is only one aspect of your business. Right. I mean, think about this. If you're in a franchise or a non-franchise and you have great marketing, but you have operations that can't support your marketing, you've got a disaster brewing. And, and that's what happens in franchising, except it can be worse than in non-franchise businesses, because in a non-franchise business, if you have great marketing and you have bad operations, then internally you need to make those tweaks. And yes, you're dealing with those internal stripes from a stripes from a corporate perspective, but from a franchise perspective, if you have great marketing and bad operations, that means you've sold a lot of franchises. So people have invested their hard-earned money in various locations, but now they're not getting the support or seeing the return of what they invested in. And now you've got a real big problem because now you've got people who've invested their money and aren't happy. And that's the recipe of uh, a lot of lawsuits. Right. Well, in, in our world, you know, it's, I shouldn't say just in our world, but in the entrepreneurial space, you cannot be the business. It is. It needs to be more of you in order to make it a, a saleable type business. I don't. I don't necessarily agree with it. I think as long as you consciously understand, you know, some of the risks associated with with being, you know, I don't want to say the one man band, but that the value is centered around that may impair value down the road. But it's okay. The point of the the this little rant is, you know. What do you see? Do you see business owners in the franchise world that it's based on lifestyle or legacy? I mean, are they looking at building a true business or or are they looking at buying themselves a job? I think it's probably the latter, but nevertheless, you're in the space more than I am. It's actually both. Um, I, I think that I think that there's a whole lot of people who get into franchising for the lifestyle that they think it's going to be. Um, but and when I say think it's going to be is they really don't. No, oftentimes. I mean, there's a lot of people who think, oh, I'm going to go buy X franchise because then I'll just hire workers and I'll never be there and it'll just print money and I'll be sitting on a beach somewhere, you know, in Hawaii. It just doesn't, doesn't work out that way. Now it, it can work out that way, but it takes years and years of getting a management team in place, having multiple units opened. And, and just like with any business, it takes a, a deliberate strategic focus. But I think there are a whole lot of people who get into franchising because of a lifestyle that they're chasing. There's also 
I talk to a whole bunch of people who get in for a legacy. I mean, you know, they, they've been working in a corporate job their whole career and they want to leave something to their kids, right? I mean, they, they, their kids are older, maybe they're off in college and, you know, they're studying business and they have a corporate, uh, nest egg that, and, or maybe they've been downsized, but they, they want to go give it a run. You know, they've, they've wanted to their whole life, but like circumstances have, have come in and, and prohibited them from doing so. And now they're in that, um, in that position where they can leave something and teach something and work with their kids. I, you hear that a whole lot where people, and so in that kind of situation, sometimes they just want to look at you know, one or a few locations just to get it going and then pass it on uh, to their kids. So you, but what I find is interesting about it is that most people don't really know. I mean, if you, sure. if you, if you ask them like, you know, why they were getting into it, what they were thinking about, you know, you get a whole bunch of answers, but you know, I don't usually hear um, I usually don't hear the legacy or lifestyle right off the bat until you probe a little bit, sure. you know, and you say, well, why are you really doing this? Oh, well, I really just want to do something with my kids. Right. Or gosh, I'm just tired of working for the man. You know what I mean? You hear that a lot. And right. it's like, I just want to have a better lifestyle balance with the family and so forth. And you know, the, uh, the, the reality is you can have that. It's just, you gotta be, you have to know really what you're buying into. I mean, you know, and so, you know, some people might think, oh, I want to have a Chick-fil-A, which, you know, Chick-fil-A is fantastic. I mean, they're one of the most profitable franchises out there. They're, they're routinely uh, do, do very, very well. But you have to know that when you buy into a Chick-fil-A, you as the owner operator are going to be there and you're going to be there a lot of hours, even though they're not, you're not going to be open on Sundays. You're going to be there a lot of other hours and you, you have to make sure you're okay with that. So the lifestyle that you think it might be creating might not be the lifestyle it's actually creating. Well, so on the legacy side, so building the, let's say multi-unit, you know, building an infrastructure, building a business that can run without you. I mean, the franchise model in general, does that normally support that type of uh, endeavor or is it more, look, this is a, a one, one or two unit, acquisition. That's what our typical franchisee is. Yeah. It's so the whole notion of a business in a box that people often correlate with franchising, I'm not a subscriber to. I think that um, every business, whether it's a franchise or a non-franchise, the owners have to be present. They have to be there. They have to be involved. They may not have to be there, you know, eight hours a day, but they have to, they have to be involved in terms of number of units and operation. I will tell you this, there are as a percentage, you know, there's always exceptions and I, I know numerous exceptions, but as a percentage, I believe that there are very few franchise opportunities where owning just one is going to be satisfying. You know, I don't think owning just one is going to be the, um, you're going to get the return that you could see with owning two, three, four, five, ten, and so on. But it depends on the franchise system. I mean, like I said, there are so many different opportunities. But as a, if if you as a general proposition, I think in franchising you need to be really paying attention to unit economics um, before you buy in, and that will help you determine. Sure 
how much you want to expand with that franchise. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think a lot of the business owners that we see, you know, they go in and instead of one plus one equals three, it's one plus one equals a half. And they don't, they just don't understand you get one working the way it's supposed to be run. And then you add rather than let's go add and let's figure out how to, how to make them work together. And that's, that's a lot of what we see when they're showing up saying, you know, uh, you know, I don't want any cheese. Just get me out of the trap. Well, it's interesting because, you know, as you know, when you, in franchise, you got to be careful too, because if people, a lot of people go in with the idea that they want to be multi-unit operators or area developers. In other words, you know, they want to either own a bunch or oversee other people owning a bunch, but they have to do it under a schedule. And usually it's a, and it's a schedule that's within the contract. And so what happens Mm -hmm. is if everything doesn't go perfectly, this whole strategy can go up in smoke because you can be in violation of your schedule within your franchise. And then what contract, but then what, what happened? Say, let's just say that you, you, you aren't able to comply with the terms and conditions of, of the contract to put in 15 units within, within the state. What, what happens? Well, this ties into it being so important to know who the franchisor is. What happens at that point is technically you're in default of your contract. Okay. So you're in default of your contract, assuming it says that. And most, if not all of them are going to say that, um, if you're in default of your contract, then it really comes down to what's the franchisor going to do. And that's where it's so important to pay attention to who you're quote unquote getting into bed with. Right. I mean, who is the franchisor? What are their values? What is, what's their makeup? Because what you see sometimes is that the franchisor really wants to work with the franchisees. And so they'll say, Hey, look, look, you know, you're technically in, in violation here, but we understand it's because of these four different reasons. What can we do to help out? And let's just kind of keep this train going. The other side of the equation is, is that if they're not like that and f- for either one or a variety of reasons, they decide they want to put the squeeze on. You can be in a world of hurt because most of these franchise agreements, unless they're negotiated out, have what's called a cross default provision and a cross default provision uh, says, and most of the franchisors have this in their agreement, that if you're in violation of any of the franchise agreements, you're in violation of all of the franchise agreements. And so therefore we can terminate all of them. So let's say you've got eight stores open on a 15 unit deal. Okay. And something's gone bad. Um, then you're in violation, let's say of one. Um, but under the contract, you might be in violation of all of them. Mm. So it can be absolutely devastating to a franchisee. Sure. Huh. So when we, we look at the franchisee, you know, that everybody wants to talk about business value. So in a franchise, where, where do you see the value? Where is it create? Not necessarily where is it created? Where is it housed? Is it, is it in, in the branding? Is it in the process? Is it in the location? And, and I know it's a loaded question because you're going to say, yeah, it's all of that. But I think that certainly some of the newer franchises it it may be branding, but there has to be a core of where the value is. And, and I guess where, where do you see it? Well, I think it shifts. I, I think what, what I mean by that is I think when you start and when you are a newbie in the franchise 
it, the value is more heavily focused on uh, the brand, the process, the location, all of those things. Um, obviously, the brand, the location are things that are prevalent throughout the term of the franchise. But what becomes more valuable uh, and highly valuable in the franchise is what is it that the franchisor is providing two years into a 10-year deal? Because two years into a 10-year deal as a franchisee, you're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, I know how this works. I can do this. I've been doing this for two years. I've been working 60 hours a week. I've got this down. Why am I continuing to pay this royalty and tech fee and management fee and all of the above? Well, franchisees always ask themselves that question. It's usually two to three years in, okay, assuming that that all goes well. And so what, as a franchisor, what I tell my clients is you guys have to be thinking about what is the ongoing value? And this is where I, I say the shift comes in because now on an ongoing basis, the system really isn't as, it's certainly important to the business, but it's not as important to the franchisee's mindset because they're like, okay, I understand. I understand how this works. And so the, on top of that, what, what you find in a lot of these franchises now is that the real ongoing value uh, occurs with the POS systems or the software um, or the proprietary systems that are continuously being developed and evolved by the franchisor. And that's something that to the average franchisee is tangible enough that they can say, oh, wow, well, I get this. I really can't do this without them because they've got a whole R&D team that's focused on, you know, the next wave of technology that we're going to need for this franchise. I mean, that's a real important distinguishing characteristic of a good, well-run franchise versus, you know, a mom and pop business that really isn't going to be able to compete with that franchise business on that front. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the process and being able to add value to the service or product that you're providing uh, on an ongoing basis seems to be superior to, I don't want to say the brand, but, but, but I think I do. Um, but what was interesting is like, take for subway, for example, the whole Jared debacle, you know, those subway owners didn't do anything. They were just, they were just hitched to, to a name same sandwich, same, same everything. And yet the values for those sandwich shops took a, took a substantial hit. And, and, and why do you think that that is? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, because again, it's, it's like that double-edged sword. It's like the, the horse you ride, you ride in on, you better make sure it's a, a damn good horse for the, for the long run. And you, and you just don't know that. I mean, right. Nobody saw the Jared thing. I mean, you could say the same thing about Papa John's, right? I mean, you know, you have, you have that. And so you have, you have, those are always inherent risks that obviously are more prevalent in the franchise space because of the branding component that's out of your control. Right. I mean, you know, you, that is the, that brand, when you're talking about a brand at that level, there is a, there's a huge hit that the company takes because they have become so well known within just the everyday world of everyday Americans, right? I mean, there's, there's thousands of franchises out there that nobody's ever heard of, but 
there's not that many who haven't heard of Subway. <laughs> there's not that many who haven't heard of Papa John's. Um, and, and so when you have that, you have a disproportional negative impact when the brand leader does something that impacts the brand. But if ironically, if you're not well known and something happens like that, you won't take as big of hit. It, it just seemed so counterintuitive that, you know, that Joe's sandwich, Joe's subway sandwich shop on the corner, it, you know, he's talking about his revenue being, you know, 30, 40% down because of Jared's sins. And yeah, it just, you know, as a, as a, well, forget even that. I mean, you know, even 30, 40%, I mean, you're talking about in this space, like with pizza or other places, I mean, a three to 4% hit can be right. the difference between profitability right. and, and not being profitable at all. Right. But that, that, that was what I was, what I was getting at was that the, you know, the franchisees or those that are, that are in this space, you know, I, the inherent risk is, and you alluded to it already is, you know, be sure of who you're getting into bed with. And, you know, no, no one could have seen the, uh, you know, getting blindsided by Papa John's or, or, or Subway, but boy, that, uh, that is a, a scary thing when your franchisor com- commands that type of, uh, value impairment based on something that they do. Well, it really is. But if you think about it, it's no different than any business. I mean, there's, there's no way to take the risk out of business, right? I mean, you know that you've been doing it for a long time. There's, there's no way to take, to, to say to somebody, okay, you're going to, you're going to have this great opportunity where you can make a whole lot of money and there's going to be no risk. I mean, there, it's just not, it, that's either a scam or it's not real. Now, what you can say to somebody is, Hey, there's an opportunity. It's probably going to be okay but there's very low risk. Yeah, you can do that. But if you're when you're talking about buying into these kinds of franchise systems, people in large part are doing it because, um, you know, they obviously want to own businesses, but they want to make money too. I mean, and they want to have an opportunity to buy something, build it up, and sell it in part off of the brand, which has helped them grow it and helped them really engage into a market more quickly than they could otherwise. Well, part of the risk is, you know. Yeah, <laughs> something could happen in that brand that actually hurts you the other way, you know? One of the, and this is, this is totally self-serving, but we, we get people that walk in our office and they're talking about their business and we talk, start talking about value and, and they have over, believe it or not, they have overinflated ideas of value. And one of the interesting things that follows that is this business can be franchised. I'm not doing it, but <laughs> the next guy can, and he'll, he'll make a fortune. So can you tell me, tell us, what does a business have to look like that's a good candidate to be franchised? Well, I think that, you know, as a, as a general proposition, okay, what I tell folks is, is that if you've got a brick and mortar type business that has a retail component to it, um, you 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 need to have at least a couple locations up and running. You know, you need to have a model proven out. Um, you need to 
it, what's nice about having at least two and, and having more is even better, but at least having two locations up and going is that now you've experienced what it's like to run two locations simultaneously. And that's hard to do um, because going from one to two is harder than going from two to three, two to four, you know, that sort of thing. Because by that point in time, you've, you've fine tuned your system. So you really got to make sure that you've got your systems together. You've got your processes. You have to make sure that you have a protected Mark, I mean, I can't tell you the number of people I talk to who want to become a franchise and I ask them to send me over their trademarks and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, have you, you know, have you protected, have you registered your name, your marks, your logos? No, I haven't done any of that. So we'll do that. Right. And because I'm like, and, and, and so you, you have to have sort of what I would call a baseline franchise foundation before you can franchise. You got to have a really, really good operations manual that's good for franchising that not only tells people, you know, how to run the business, um, but tells them about the business, trains them well into the business. So you have to have really good training protocols. Um, And I really think at the end of the day, you have to have a good strategy for how you want to try to grow. I see a whole lot of people make the mistake of getting enamored with franchising and they go through this process and it's expensive and takes a long time. And then at the end of it, they're like, okay, now what? And it's like, well, you you should have been thinking about that all along. I mean, the idea that you would franchise your business and not have a clear strategy of, okay, once this is franchised, you know, we've got it set out so that Based on market studies, you know, we believe that there's five locations in this community. There's seven locations here. We think we can expand out from there. I mean, really putting some thought into it is a real big mistake because at the end of the day, when you're franchising your business, that is a long-term strategy. You're saying that you want to utilize other people's money to grow your business. You don't want to just grow it corporately. Well, if you're going to do that, you better think long and hard of what those people look like, who they are, where they're located, where, where should you not go? Where is your market limited? Is it limited at all? I mean, these are all things that have nothing to do with the legal structuring of your business, but have everything to do with the opportunity for success after you franchised. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, and and this was, it segues, right? perfectly into my next question, which is private equity groups. So his, historically, private equity groups, you know, they they buy a good business, not necessarily a, a floundering business, and they add gas to it and they fix uh, processes and, and then take off from there. And what's so interesting is that there's a lot of private equity groups that are targeting, you know, either uh, groups of franchisees or the franchisors themselves. And, and it seems to me that we're seeing more, more PE groups are looking for opportunities. And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to, to, to know why, why that might be, or have you, do you, do you have any experience with, with, uh, with that? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, on the PE side, uh, the private equity side, I mean, I think what you have is, you know, private equity investors are looking for one thing and one thing only. They're looking for a return. Okay, and what they see in franchises is an opportunity of a return at a larger scale level. 
So hey, we can buy into a system that already has 250 locations and we can tweak some things and take it from 250 to 600 faster than they can take it from 250 to 600. And by doing that, we can increase the unit economics of each one by X percent. And, you know, therefore we can generate a return of Y. And so, I mean, it's, it's very, very calculated. What, what you're seeing a little bit of are private equity firms that have had success with maybe one transaction like that. And now they think every franchise transaction is like that. And that can be a mistake. I mean, because going into just because you've done it with one franchise system doesn't mean you can do it with every franchise system because there is a culture, there is a soul to, to a franchise. And if you go in, as often happens with some of these BE firms, and they change everything, sometimes you kill the golden goose, right? I mean, sometimes sure. you kill the things that really helped make it special and you take something that once was special and now you destroy it. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that this is what's happening. I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but if you look at kind of what's happened with steak and shake a little bit, you know, when you see how that brand, I mean, that brand has been around for a long, long time and it's, to say it's going through some changes right now would be an understatement and they're having major, major challenges. Well, I think there's an argument that the individual or, or group that took over Steak and Shake really didn't have a good sense of its culture, of its soul, yeah. or really didn't look at what made it special and rather just looked at Hey, how can we just turn a quick profit on this? Well, it's funny you say that because I, I drove by one of the locations and to get into that franchise now, it's a $10,000 downstroke and 50% of the profits. Uh, it's yeah, unbelievable. It's like a well, it's like a, that's what kind of what Chick-fil-A does. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a play off of the Chick-fil-A playbook. So, I mean, you, you get into a Chick-fil-A franchise for $10,000 and, and then you split profits. Now, I don't know if it's 50% profits, but you, 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 you share in the profits. Now, trying to compare Chick-fil-A yeah, and steak and shake is there's no, there, there's no comparison, but I think that that, my guess is that's where the model Yeah came from but my also i also am guessing that it came out of desperation sure. too because you know one thing you've seen at steak and shakes is that their service has gone way down um they the, the cleanliness has gone way down um the level of attention to detail has gone way down and to me that's a direct reflection of culture yeah. and and so, you know, you've seen over the years where they've tried to make steak and shakes smaller or they've tried to do these value meals where you get, you know, seven hamburgers for three dollars right. or whatever the case may be. I mean, just like a race to the bottom um, on pricing. And I think they kind of lost their way. And now they're at a point. I mean, I, yeah, I drove by one the other day and it was like it was closed with a big sign on it that said, you know, franchise opportunity, 10 K and 50% profits. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the sign. So I, I, I don't know how that's going to work. It yeah. seems a little bit desperate to me. Um, but you know, there's always folks who come in and, and, and take, take advantage of that opportunity. I mean, I think if I look at a model, like, like a Freddy's steak burgers, and again, I've 
don't know anything. I don't know the owners or have any personal connection with them, but I just know as a consumer, to me, Freddy's is doing pretty well. And they remind me of what Steak and Shake used to be. Yeah. But better. Well, and I agree. I think I think they they cited the the decline in in Steak and Shake and the, and they came and and put their foot right right in the middle of the market. I think I think you're exactly right. Yeah, and it's great. And you know, people go there and I mean, I'm, every time I go there the place is packed, the drive-thrus packed, the inside's packed. It's it's kid-friendly, the people are nice, it's good quality, you know. But it's like I'm not going in there saying, "Oh gee, how little can I spend? I go in there because I'm like, oh, wow, my kids really want to go get their burgers and shakes and fries and let's go and get it. You know what I mean? And and they they focus on the quality of it and quality of the experience. And they they have a much, um, they have a very good culture, I think, along with um, they really know what lane that they belong in. One of the things that that I saw in researching for for our visit was that According to Fran data, there's almost 16,000 unopened franchise locations due to lack of suitable space. Is is that a true statistic? I mean, how is that possible that that there isn't there isn't availability out there? Well, I'm not sure that there's not availability. I think it's right though that it's become much harder. I think the right kind of availability has been challenging. I think I've seen a lot. I know myself for people who are looking for locations that you can find land sometimes, but you can't find the right zoning. And so that, you know, you have to go through a whole process uh, for that. I will tell you this, though, you're seeing a whole, it's interesting to me because it's, you know, you talk to a lot of franchisors as I do and, and you'll get, well, we've got 50 locations open and another 150 signed. And I'm always wondering, and you can see this in the FDD, but you know, it's like, wow, 150 that are signed but not open. I mean, what's that look like? I mean, that's yeah. hey, that, that is. I mean, you you see that all the time. Now, obviously, in a good economy like we're in right now, the demand is there. Um, but I think a challenge for some of these franchisors is that you know most of the franchise agreements give a period of time, you know, it can be 90 days, 120, 100. I mean, it can be a variety of uh, time period to go and secure the real estate that you need for your franchise. But if I'm a franchisee, I'm going to have a pretty doggone good idea of where I want to be before I'm going to pay that franchise fee. I mean, to, to me, it doesn't make, I'm not saying you, you you're going to know exactly, but Ed, you and I both know how important location is. Yeah. And it seems backwards to me that you would, you know, pay your 50000 franchise fee, pay for your lawyer, for your accountant, go through this whole process, and you don't even know where your place is going to go? Well, right. I, I, look at, I look at it from the standpoint of, from a, a risk aversion standpoint, you know, it's almost, we're almost to that point where we're ready to go. And you know what? It's just not perfect. This, this, and, and then they, they abort the process to go find a new suitable space. And yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, like I said, I think the challenge for me is that I, I look at it and if I'm a, a prospective franchisee and 
and I see that there's a hundred signed, but they haven't pulled the trigger. I, I have to wonder why I have to wonder, you know, what do they know that I don't? <laughs> well, I tell people it well, it kind of, this kind of lines with that. I mean, sometimes people say, Hey, what's the hottest franchise? I mean, that's the question I get all the time. And, and I'm always like, well, just, I can tell you a lot of franchises that are going really well and they've sold a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to buy into it. It's like, if I said, what's the hottest stock? Well, it may be at its peak right now. And so you may be doing the opposite of what's smart, which is buying when it's the highest right. <laughs> and then you're going to sell when it's lower. Right. So there's a whole bunch of factors you have to look into, but you're right. I mean, the nice thing is about the franchise disclosure documents, you know, that are registered, that are uh, regulated under federal law and then uh, many different state laws is that, you know, the tables contained within the FDD, um, they'll show you how many are open, how many have been signed but aren't opened, how many are corporate locations, how many are franchise locations. And there's a lot that you can take from those numbers, right? I mean, and, and those are great questions to then go back during a discovery day with the franchisor and say, hey, listen, you know, it sounds like this is great and everything, but I'm just kind of curious. You guys have 50 locations open, but you got 150 that are signed up and aren't open. What's going on there? And, and you know, it might be a combination of, well, we're just, it's a, it's a hot business right now and we're just signing people up left and right to, you know, I'd want to know how long, you know, what's the average person taking from the time they sign to the time they open? Um, how long in the process are these folks who are not open? Have they been searching for a location? Um, those can tell you a lot of different things. They can tell you how efficient of an operations and assistant team they have assistance team that the franchisor has. It can tell you how much assistance they're actually giving you to go find, uh, properties. You know, sometimes you see where you see the sign up for the, for the franchise and it's like three months later, four months later, it's still not open. It's like, well, what's going on here? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, well, you know, part of a good franchise system is that they should have that down. I mean, you know, if you've got a retail location, you should, you should have a retail specs of what you're building. You should have a contractor that's going to oversee that process or go out and oversee it. I mean, that's to ensure that it's done right, but also a little bit faster than the typical process. And so when that's not happening, it does raise question marks. Yeah. It, it And it does. So moving over to your practice. So I'm either, I'm a, I'm a business owner that I want to be a franchisor. How do I know when to call you? And conversely, I'm looking at a franchisee, whether it be new franchisee or resale. I mean, when should a business owner or prospective uh, entrepreneur be looking to someone like you for, for counsel? Well, I think if you're, a, on the franchisee side, um, if you get to a point where you're down to one or two that you're really, really interested in, that's a really good time to call me. Certainly before you go to a discovery day, um, if possible, um, but definitely before you sign anything. But usually if you've got it down to one or two, um, you know, usually it's a good time to give a call. On the franchisor side, if you are contemplating going the franchise route, at that point in time is a great time to call me because, 
you know, I do a lot of work with folks and educating them on what franchise is and isn't, um, the difference between franchising and licensing. Um, do they really want to become a franchise? What will it take for them to become a franchise? Things that they can do and not do during that process and kind of walk through a whole lot of other um, aspects of it. So it's kind of interesting. If you're on the franchisor side, you probably want to contact me sooner rather than later. If you're on the franchisee side and you're looking at 10 different concepts, you probably want to contact me when you narrow it down a little bit. <laughs> but, sure. but you know, if you have questions on how to narrow it down or want, you know, referrals to good, good uh, consultants or anything like that, you know, obviously, you know, folks like you, Ed, and people at the Indiana Business Advisors are great folks to, to help with that. Um, but typically, in terms of the legal services on the franchisee side, it's usually better when it's narrowed down to one or two. Okay. Well, I've been accumulating one piece, one piece of advice um, that would give the most immediate impact on business value. So if you had one piece of advice to give to our listeners that would have the most immediate impact on the business, what would it be? You know, there's so many things that you can, that you can do in a business, but if you're talking about true business value, I know for myself, and again, I don't think this is, it has to be the same answer across the board, but I look at the people, you got to have great people who keep the thing going and are fully vested in it. And you've got to be in a business and in a market that has potential for the age that we're living in. So in other oh. words, you know, I, I really think you get, I, I really think more and more business folks, you know, they can look and see what you're doing today, but if they can see where this thing's going to go 10 years from now, I think you've really increased your business value, you know? And so obviously along with having, making sure that you're focused, you're profitable, you're making sure you're focusing on the things that are working. I think those are all obvious things. But one thing I consistently hear from people is they place higher value on businesses where they say, you know what, I think I can make a tweak here and there and this thing is primed for the next 10 or 15 years or primed for an opportunity to be purchased with the next 10 or 15 years in mind. Perfect. No, that, you know, the, you, you had mentioned employees and I'll tell you one of the things, and I don't know if, if you're seeing the same thing in your space, but I'll tell you what, the employee challenge is real out there that, you know, finding good employees and retaining them, you know, not that it's not necessarily been the same, you know, 20 years ago, but it's, it certainly seems amplified these days. Oh, it's hard. I mean, you know, the, we're, we're in such a tight market right now that it is, I routinely hear how hard it is to find and keep good people. And so I think that, I think that's always a challenge, even in a market where the unemployment's higher, but I think it's a real challenge now in that, you know, a lot of the folks are employed. And so I think what, what happens is, is you can't just say that and just let that be an excuse. Well, that, that then has to lead to the entrepreneur or the business coming up with better and creative ways to satisfy the employees. Because just because these people are hired, I mean, it sounds bad, but uh, it doesn't mean you can't go get them from somebody else. Right. Sure. I mean, if you offer a better opportunity in the same space, they're probably going to come to you. Right. Right. And we were talking home health care earlier. You know, we talked to, to home health care business owners and that they're losing people, you know, for a quarter an hour more. 
I routinely hear that. It's amazing. Like to you and I to go, oh, you'd really leave for a quarter. And then, of course, you got all the issues with non-competes and all that kind of stuff that they have to sort out with that. But the fact that somebody would leave for a quarter more an hour. But I will say this. It's not just about the money. It's about the environment. It's about the benefits. I mean, you're seeing a lot of people differentiating themselves on the healthcare side, you know, what kind of benefits they're offering, what kind of lifestyle. I mean, depending on the type of business you have, if you're looking for millennials, I can tell you that for a lot of them, just having flexibility, having better lifestyle form is going to make the difference. It has nothing to do with the money. Uh, it has to do with their lifestyle. Yeah, we, we see the same. In fact, uh, one of our new hires, I mean, she, she's a millennial and, and it, it is interesting that uh, that flexibility is superior to, to compensation. So, no, we see the same thing. Amazing. So, before I let you go, um, what's the best way we can connect with you? Well, the best way is to just email me at, uh, you can email me at josh at indiefranchiselaw.com. Um, you can also check out the podcast, just search in iTunes or wherever you listen uh, to podcasts and go check out Franchise Euphoria. We can always connect that way. But typically uh, by email uh, is, is the best way. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll certainly link everything that we've talked about as well as your all your contact information to, uh, to put it in the show notes and uh, we'll go from there. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Ed. Oh, it's been great. Oh man, likewise. I, I I've uh, been looking forward to this one, and and you certainly didn't disappoint. So I I do appreciate all your time. Keep up the great work. All right, thanks so much, Josh. Thank you for joining the Defenders of Business Value podcast. If you're preparing your business for sale, visit LegacyTransitionAdvisors.com or text EXIT to 35893 to begin your journey to maximum saleable value. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to transfer maximum value in your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com. Better yet, subscribe now so you don't miss the future episodes. This program is copyright Legacy Transition Advisors, LLC. All rights reserved.